Well, that's a great way to get started, is it not? What a good way to get going here. I, um, I think the heart of uh, just worship, and we appreciate your heart in sharing with us, BJ, it, it's such a great reminder for all of us that really what we want to be as a people is being re- constantly reminding ourselves that Jesus, if, if we really believe he rose that we celebrated last week, then he is Lord even in our ups and downs. That he doesn't change who he is based on what we're going through. That he is still Lord and he is on his throne. And so that is what we celebrate. And that is uh, who we are as people and as we're being shaped by his image. So uh, that's what we're about this morning. Uh, before we get going, I just want to thank you. Uh, last week was Easter. It it's, you know, tends to be one of the bigger days of the entire year for a church. A lot of people in the community come out. And uh, sometimes it's, it's their uh, twice a year pilgrimage to us or whatever it might be. If that's you and you came again this week, welcome back. It's good. It's great to have you with us. Um, but I want to just thank all of you, again, who volunteered and who made uh, everything happen last week. It takes a lot of people uh, to make it happen. I was just, it's so fun for me to show up and to, to come and people asking, is Easter ready? And I, and I just said, you know, our team said it was, so I think so. Um, I, I planned the sermon. That's what you're asking. And, and that was about it. And then to show up and, and have all the greeters and hospitality teams and the food and the music and, and the tech uh, team di- working overtime and everyone. So all of you and, and the kids workers, they had a ton of fun in there. Um, if you saw any of that, that should be the advertisement for you to help next year. Uh, what a blast it, uh, they, the kids had. So uh, I just want to thank all of you who took got up extra early on Easter uh, to help host our community. So thank you for what you did. That was, it made it a great morning. We really appreciate you. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's interesting how the week after Easter now, we, I always think like, well, what, what, did, what do we talk about after that? And so this morning we're starting a three-week, very short uh, series uh, that we're calling After Easter. And it's really because often we, we study and we read the story and we've been going through the book of Luke and we get up to the resurrection and we celebrate that. And then the next week we just kind of throw our Bibles open and say, well, now what? But I thought, well, let's continue on and finish up and say, what happened right after Easter? What, was, what happened to the first disciples in the early church? Like, what, now that he rose and they saw him walking around, what did that mean for their lives? If we really believe that the resurrection was real and it was a turning point in all history, it changed everything. So we want to study that a little bit. I think a lot of us can look back in our lives and think of uh, times in our lives when we would identify maybe one event or one thing that you say, everything was different after that. Sometimes it's very big kind of life transformational type events. Sometimes it's, it's just small things along the way. Sometimes they're fun things where everything changed. Um, I want to show you a picture that for me, uh, this, this was something that was really cool for me, a, a changing point in my life. Do we have that photo there? There we go. Okay. So... As many of you know, I am a very big baseball fan. I love baseball. I don't know why, but when I was all the way down to being a kindergartner, I remember when my dad taught me about baseball, and I just fell in love with it. Now, in addition to being a baseball fan, I'm a huge Boston Red Sox fan. And, and so, will you, will you forgive me? That's all right. So, <laughs> I'm guessing that you might like the other side of this picture then. So, I, and so... As a Red Sox fan, there's something you need to know that up until 1918, the Red Sox won more World Series than any other team. They were the best team out there. 
And then they went through a little 86-year drought. Um, now, you laugh, but you live in San Diego, so slow your roll. All right, so... <laughs> But so they went 86 years, and during that time, the team, the New York Yankees, won a lot of World Series. They won a lot of World Series, and, and uh, if you were alive in the 50s, you'll remember those. So, um, <laughs> sorry, it's just Red Sox, Yankees stuff. All right, but we, uh, so every year, there was this kind of competition that went on. And in 2003, the Red Sox had a great team, thought they were going to the World Series, and lost to the Yankees on the last game before the World Series in extra innings on a home run. So it's like, here we go again. Here we go again. The next year was 2004. And in July of 2004, the Red Sox were behind the Yankees by eight games in the standings. This all matters in just a moment, I'll tell you. And then there was this game in July when this happened. See, on the right, you have... Uh, the catcher for the Red Sox, Jason Veritek. On the left, you have uh, Alex Rodriguez, who played for the Yankees. So Alex Rodriguez just got hit by a pitch right before this. And he was telling the pitcher very nicely, hey, please don't do that again. Next time, would you throw that ball over the plate so I can have a better chance at hitting it? Something like that. And Jason Veritek, who's a catcher for the Red Sox, very politely asked Alex Rodriguez to be quiet and just walk to first base um, and just nicely, just said, would you please just go to first base? And, and when Alex Rodriguez, and, and he said something like, close your mouth, something along those lines. And, and, and when Alex Rodriguez refused to close his mouth, Jason Veritek, the catcher, said, well, I'll just put my glove in your mouth and keep it closed for you. <laughs> And at this point, of course, what is part of unwritten rules of baseball, both of the benches come out and they push each other around a little bit. No one actually wants to get hurt. They just kind of have fun with it. <laughs> if you play baseball, you track it with me. You know actually how it goes. At this point, the Red Sox went on. They were losing the game at this point. They end up winning that game on a home run in extra innings. From that point on, the Red Sox went on, and that year, they had the greatest comeback in baseball or sports history and defeated the Yankees and won the World Series. And since that time, no other team has won more World Series than the Boston Red Sox in this century, and this is the century that matters. So, <laughs> many fans will say that this moment was a turning point, that everything changed after that. No longer were they going to be pushed around and bullied by the evil empire, that, <laughs> that now we are not going to take it and we're going to be the champions. It was a turning point. Now we talk about this on a very superficial level. Why do we sometimes see Easter as something that when Easter happened, it happens, we celebrate it, it's big, and then that's it. In 12 months, we'll talk about it again. When really that was a point when it wasn't just a catcher pushing a, a, a star on the other team. That it was Jesus Christ, the Lord of the world, Son of God, who came and died for us, rose from the dead, and defeated death once and for all. Nothing is more transformational than that day and that moment. Everything changed from that point on. And so for us, we need to ask that question, how does that change for us every single day? Not just some sort of uh, kind of philosophical change, but how does it actually change? What is life after Easter like for us now? 
And that's what we want to study. So pray with me before we jump into the word. God, we thank you again for today. And I ask now, Lord, as we look into your word, that this wouldn't just be familiar stories, but they'd be stories that transform and change us, that remind us of who you are, and that declare the truth about who, what you did on that Easter, and now how we can live in light of that truth. So we thank you, and we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to start in the book of Luke, again, chapter 24, but we're mostly going to be in the book of Acts for the next couple weeks. But, so you can find Luke, and then Acts is just two books later. Uh, but in the book of Luke, chapter 24, how it ends is Jesus rose, and in 24, his disciples still are getting the news. They're still figuring it out of what happened. Uh, the women ran to the tomb. They saw that he wasn't there. They came back, told their disciples. And, and the disciples now, uh, Peter ran, saw the, t- the tomb. Now they're saying, okay, is this true? That Jesus told us that he would rise from the dead. Now it appears to be he's no longer in his tomb and he is risen. But they're still waiting for truth or, or for more confirmation. We have this a kind of obscure story right after that too. It's called, many people call it the road to Emmaus. And, and you have these two disciples that are, one of them is named Cleopas. And, and we don't know who he is, but he's a follower of Jesus. And another disciple, they're walking along the road and Jesus joins them on their journey. It's an eight mile walk. Now, they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was, whether that was because Jesus kind of, their, their eyes were closed spiritually or what it was, um, but it could be that they weren't expecting it to be Jesus walking with them. So they, their, their minds are thinking, okay, this, of course Jesus isn't, you know, he, we saw him die. So here's a guy that kind of looks like him, but he's walking with us. And, and I think there's some interesting things here that I want to just introduce our, our subject. Jesus walks up to him in verse 16 of Luke 24. And he heard them talking and he said, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped and they looked discouraged. One named Cleopas answered Jesus and said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in these days? And Jesus said, what things? And they said, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. Check verse 21. But we were hoping he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's been three days since this happened. Moreover, some of the women from our group, they astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us also went to the tomb. They found it just as the women said, but they didn't see him. And Jesus said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scripture. So here's the scene. After Easter, the disciples are saying, well, they say he rose, but we're disheartened. We were hoping he would be the one, but we don't really know. So Jesus starts explaining to them everything that the prophets had written for him. Later on, we find at the end of the the chapter 24 that Jesus again sees the rest of the disciples. He appears to them. He lets them see his scars, his wounds. And in verse 44 in chapter 24, he says this. And this is to the inner circle, the group. He says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you. 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, this is what's written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As, you, as for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. So right now, what we have is Jesus rose. He's speaking to them and teaching them and talking to them about, hey, you've seen it. This is just fulfilling all of scripture to this point. Now, I want to invite you to turn over to the book of Acts chapter 1. The reason I want to go to Acts chapter 1 is because Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And the, Acts chapter 1, see how it begins. It says, Luke writes and he says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's writing an account to somebody. Until the day he was taken up after he'd given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them with many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the context of what we're starting off with today is this. Jesus rose, and now he spends a period of 40 days. Now, in Scripture, when you have a number, a length of time, um, sometimes it is literal, like the three days in the grave. Sometimes it, it can be taken more metaphorically. This one could be either 40 days often in Scripture is signifying that this is a long period of time. It's a significant period of time. It's not, and, and in the Greek myth, mythological world, there was um, theophanies or appearances of their gods or goddesses, but they often were very brief and happened quickly, and one person would see it and tell everyone else, oh, I saw Zeus or whatever it might be. So it's significant that in that cultural setting that Jesus spent and lived at least 40 days, a long significant time with the people, with many convincing proofs that he ate with them. He went fishing with them. We saw that he walked along the road. He spent time with them for 40 days. And let's not miss the end of verse 3. And he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Do you know the number one thing that Jesus talked about while he was alive, before he was crucified, was the kingdom of God? He taught about the kingdom of God, saying, this is the nature of the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom that God is bringing to you is here, and this is what it looks like. And, and he talked about justice and mercy and, and how there's a king who's actually a forgiving king and a gracious king, but also a just king. And, and, and that the kingdom of God was advancing and expanding and growing and all of these teachings about the kingdom of God. And the disciples heard them for a period of, we think, three, three and a half years. But when Jesus rises from the dead, what Luke tells us is that he spent the first 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God again. Now, put yourselves in their shoes. You had three years of teaching. You should have already been able to pass the test. But don't you think you'd listen a little closer now? That when he rose from the dead and said, okay, guys, do you want me to go over any of what I've been teaching you again? Because apparently he had to go start with, the prop, with Moses and the prophets and all the Psalms to show how he was a fulfillment of all scripture. Then he said, okay, let me teach you about the kingdom of God. So at the heart of Jesus on his resurrection was he wanted his disciples to understand the kingdom of God and what that entails, what that means. And they were going to be witnesses to this message. Now, when we hear the word witness, I think some of us might think of 
It might make you kind of a little nervous, a little scared. Oh, what do you mean, be my witnesses, Lord? And, and, and the question that often happens is, what are we supposed to do with this information? We, we find in the book of Acts, there's five or six different times when Luke writes and says, as the disciples were witnesses to what happened with Jesus, the church grew and numbers were added every day. So is it, should it be the goal for every church that we grow every day and our numbers are adding? Is there, is, should it be our goal as Christians that everybody we see were witnesses about Jesus and, and more and more people will become Christians as we interact with them? I think the fundamental question often on our mind is, Jesus, if I am saved by you and if you are Lord, then what do you want from me? And the question is, what does God want from me? If this is all true, now what? Is this just for the disciples or is it also for all of us as disciples? What does God want from me? And to understand that, I just want to present a couple ideas and we're going to expand on them in the next couple weeks. But let's continue on in Luke's, Luke, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 1. Because we want to answer that question. Now Jesus continues to teach them and I want to jump down to verse 7. Or verse 6, sorry. They're asking, they say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Are you, is your kingdom, your physical kingdom, are you now going to sit on a throne and be here at this time? They had a belief that in the end, God, Jesus would physically reign on earth. Jesus says in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Essentially what he was saying, if he was saying it to us, would be, you will be my witnesses in North Coastal County, San Diego, and the rest of Southern California, and then to the ends of the earth. To the world in which you live and interact every day, to a little bit greater, and for them, Judea, Samaria represented geographically pretty close, but economically, racially, all that, it was breaking the barriers. So he said, not only the people that you live with and you're familiar with, but you're going to break these barriers that have existed. You'll be my witnesses cross-culturally. You're going to be witnesses to the people that some from your own um, race despise and dislike. You're going to break those barriers. And then to the ends of the earth, which of course extends to everyone, people who don't believe, people who are worshiping Zeus, worshiping Caesar, to the ends of the earth, you will be witnesses of this message. Some people think it's the, the, a new beginning of a new movement. This morning on your outline, I have it, and it says a renewed beginning. Because this finds its roots far back. And, and today, uh, by the way, I forgot to say this at the beginning. Some weeks, I give you a lot of history and a lot of kind of cultural context. This week, we're going to be a little heavy on the theology side. So those of you who like that, that understanding why things are the way they are, that's kind of what today is about. If this is all new for you, just track with us and we'll, we'll get there. But it's important to know why is this what God asked? And why did he say you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth? I want to show you a verse in Genesis chapter 1. The very beginning of the Bible. Verse 27. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created a male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on earth. So the very beginning, the very first command given to mankind was be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But before that, the writer in Hebrews tells us that mankind, male and female, was created in the image of God. This is a Hebrew word and terminology that roughly the modern day Hebrew equivalent is photograph. 
You are made in the likeness of God. The picture that you would have here as well is what ancient rulers would do is they would make statues of themselves if they were conquer a land. You'd take that statue, that image of you, and you'd put it in every land that you conquered so that people knew that this land belongs to the person who we see the statue, the image of. What God does from the very beginning is he creates mankind in his image with the ability to represent his character. Now, because of sin, none of us can fully represent all of the characteristics of God at all times. That's why I love this picture of male and female are created and and together we can represent the image of God. We all have our strengths, weaknesses, different viewpoints. Together, without sin, we represent the image of God. Here's the picture. God says, you are to scatter, notice he says, fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and then rule over it. As my people, my image will spread through the ends of the earth. You are my witnesses of my character, the way you go, the way you live. Now, if you read the biblical narrative, we're not getting into it today, but by chapter uh, 10, we have this story of the Tower of Babel, and what happens is the people come together and they say, hey, let us make a name for ourselves. The Bible begins by God saying, go make a name for me. Represent me, my kingdom. Humans said, hey, let's represent ourselves. Let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens, which was symbolic of saying we want to reach into the spiritual realm. And let's come together and make a name for ourselves. So this is where we have this story called the Tower of Babel, where God does what? He scatters humanity to the end of the earth. He says, your tendency is to gather and make a name for yourself. Your call is to scatter and make a name for me. So this is rooted, the theology of even what Jesus is saying, when he says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, he's saying, you represent me as you go. I was thinking about, I was having a conversation with my wife um, a couple weeks ago, and uh, as I, I mentioned before, I coach Little League Baseball. I love it. So much fun for me. And I was talking to my wife the other day. Our teams never really are the first place team, um, but we're always in the standing somewhere. And so, um, <laughs> but we, I love the teams every year. I just, I feel like we always have a really fun group, and I tell my wife the other day, I'm like, it happened again. We have this really fun group of I mean, of players, and we have great families, and I just love this team. It seems like every year, I'm so lucky. I end up with a team who are a bunch of knuckleheads who just love playing baseball. They have a good time. They keep it loose, and she looked at me, and she said, Ryan, do you think it might be because that's how you are as a coach? And I wasn't smart enough to figure that out (laughs) because I'm just a knucklehead like my players. (laughs) And she said, don't you realize that maybe they're representing the culture you're creating, that it's, you're just having a great time learning baseball, you keep it loose, and you know, just getting out there. And I thought, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense. I thought I just picked the fun kids, which I think I do, but this is the idea of the image of God. Not me, showing up in other kids. But as you see the different players, as you see the different people, you can say, I bet I know who you belong to. Think of it as parents and our kids. How many times do we look at our kids who go out and sometimes we think, please don't misrepresent us. <laughs> One of the things my wife and I often talk about is as long as you, our kids know how to behave in public, then we can tolerate more what happens at home, right? So a lot of parents are like, oh yes, amen. <laughs> 
Why? Because we say you represent us when you're out there. You are the witnesses of our family and how we interact. For better and for worse, humanly speaking, I think sometimes many of us have some of the characteristics of our parents that maybe we wish we didn't have. But we're witness. Did I just get an amen on that one? All right, that's good. (laughs) This is the picture in Scripture. If we are part of the family of God, we are witnesses to who God is. In Isaiah chapter 43, I have this on the screen for you. 43 through, uh, beginning in verse 10. It says this, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. You're my servant whom I've chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I am the Lord and there is no savior besides me. It is I who have declared and I've saved and proclaimed and there's no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses declares the Lord. And I am God, even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. If I act, who can reverse it? From the beginning, we have this picture that we are witnesses. We're called to represent, and notice this. What What are we representing? What are we witnesses to? The character and power of God. So we're representing and we're witnesses to that. In the very first church when I became a Christian, uh, that first summer that I was there, uh, they were very big about what we would traditionally call witnessing. Remember, they put a stack of 10,000 tracts. You're familiar with those? They're like these little pamphlets that are like steps to peace with God. They put them in the lobby and said, by the end of the summer, we want everyone to take these and and share with 10,000 different people about Jesus, which was cool, noble, admirable, all of that. But what I thought was, when I was a new Christian, I thought that being a witness was only that. And what that fails to recognize is not everyone's gifted to do that. Not everyone can go up to a stranger and say, hey, can I ask you what would happen if you died tonight? Now, some of you are very gifted at that. God's called you to it, uniquely made you for that. God bless you. We need people like you. But most of us, our form of witnessing is going to be building relationships and being the the representation, the image of God to others. Both are very important. But sometimes we think when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, we think, oh man, I've got to go knock on 10 doors and tell people about Jesus if I'm to fulfill this. But I want to give you a deeper picture of that with just a couple thoughts. What are we witnesses to is the bigger question. And here's a few thoughts. The first one is this. We are witnesses of Jesus's future kingdom. So this would be traditionally what we talk about of, hey, we, wanna, we want you to understand that Jesus can forgive you from your sins, all of your sins of the past, present, and future, and you can have new life in him and eternal life with the Father in heaven. So we're witnesses to that truth. The fact that Jesus came out of the grave means that he conquered the, uh, the consequences of sin and death, and in Jesus, G- according to Jesus, is if you believe in him and trust that his work on the cross was enough, we can be saved for all eternity. That is good, good news. And we're witnesses of God's future kingdom. But if we stop just with that, if all it is is, hey, our goal is to help everyone get rescued from hell and into heaven, that we miss out on something. Actually, there's a term here. It's called dualism. 
that if our view of the world is all about this world and this physical reality is bad, but spirituality is good, and heaven is, eternal life is all we live for, that's all we're hoping for, and we just can't wait to be done here, that's called dualism. We're thinking, this earth is bad. When actually God said, I created it, and it is good. Now we have the consequences of sin, but it still is God's earth. We're still put here to be his witnesses and to rule over it in God-honoring ways, not in domineering ways. If it's Psalm 24, verse 1, says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If that is true, then we can't have a dualistic view that the whole goal of life is to escape this world to get to the next. But often traditionally in Christianity, sometimes we think that way. But that's not what it means to be witnesses. It's not just about God's future kingdom. God's future kingdom is very, very important. And it's good news for us. But there's more to it. The other thing is this. I believe we're, well, I don't believe. I believe it because it's in scripture. But the other thing is this. We're witnesses also of Jesus' current kingdom. See, Jesus taught us to pray, God, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth just as it is in heaven. So now, just as it will be ultimately for all time. Jesus, we, when you came out of the grave, it means that Jesus was Lord of this earth and we are witnesses to the truth that he is Lord now, not just in the future. He is Lord over this world, not just the spiritual world. If he stays in the grave, that's all there was to it. But if he came out of it, That means now we are witnesses to a life that declares that Jesus is Lord and God and King today in our lives. When we live the kingdom principles of justice, compassion, mercy, those kind of things, we put the life and the character of God on display. We're declaring that he is Lord. Now there's a danger with this viewpoint without the other. If you only have this viewpoint, which some churches do or traditionally, historically have, and that's what we call social gospel. That we say, well, Jesus is Lord now, so we want to do good. We want to take care of the poor and the hurting and, and lean into all the social issues, which I believe Christians should. But if we do that and we forget that there's also a spiritual reality, that God has saved us from our old lives, and now we are new creations with a new life, and there's a moral component to this. If we're just social without the life transformed by Jesus being Lord of our spiritual lives, our moral lives, then we're missing out there too. See, it's both. He's Lord of our future kingdom. He's Lord of, he's over our sins and the power and the consequence of death. But he, and he is Lord for today. That is what the fullness of the good news is. N.T. Wright said it this way. The gospel, the good news is this declares that Jesus was raised from the dead and is this world's true Lord. God is God, Jesus is Lord, the powers of evil have been defeated, and God's new world has begun. The point is not just you are saved, so as long as you go on behaving, you will join Jesus in heaven one day. But living in light of the kingdom means that it's now natural for us to put on display God's character in every one of our interactions. It's natural for us to be transformed and be made new into new creations because of what Christ has done. So we witness to God's future kingdom, but also his current kingdom, how we live and interact. When we face trials and hardships, do we respond as if God left? Or can we face those saying, even in our doubt, 
even in our weaknesses, Jesus is Lord. We can, as Christians, lean into difficult issues in, in, in our culture. We are free, in fact, even called to love the poor and the oppressed. As Christians, we should be leaders in movements like the Me Too movement and bringing dignity and, and, and love to those who need it. Why? Because that's putting God's character on display. The character of God who cares for every man, woman, and child. Who doesn't differentiate. Who doesn't play into the, the powerful win and the weak lose. No, the kingdom of God breaks all those barriers. And if we are witnesses from here to the ends of the earth, then we put God's justice and mercy, compassion on display through our lives. And we do that also with that life that's being transformed into the image and likeness of God. Not this moral conformity, but these lives that are being transformed. Jesus, if you saved me from sin in my old life, according to Romans chapter six, if I'm dead to my old life, now I'm free to live no longer in the sin. I wanna honor you with my life. Everything in my life that is not representative of the character of God, I want you, Jesus, to get rid of that through your Holy Spirit. Transform me. Make me less of a jerk every day so I can have your character on display. Help me be free from addictions and things that are destroying my life and others because I want more of you and less of that stuff. Help me not be owned by finances and power and, and trying to dominate over other people, but live free. Someone who trusts that you are Lord in the good times and bad. That's what it means. So the next couple weeks, we're going to continue to look at how this started to play out in the early church and then how this plays out for us. As we are witnesses, not just for the future kingdom, but also for God's current kingdom. Let our lives declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Because when he came out of the grave, that's what that confirmed. And that is the heart of the good news, that he is Lord. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up. And, and I want to leave you with one last verse. This is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. This is a long passage about the resurrection. Paul speaks about the resurrection power and the significance of it in our lives. And he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, this is the very end of the whole argument about resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, when we live in light of the resurrection, we're transformed people. We're declaring that Jesus is Lord. Know that your work what we do in the name of Jesus as we represent and declare that he is Lord in our lives and in this world, that that is not in vain. That, that is truth that Jesus uses for his name. So we're going to sing with one final song here and then uh, end with a, 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 another thing right after that song. So let's just join me as we pray and just ask God to continue to be Lord in this place. And let's declare who he is. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are Lord. We thank you for what you mean in our lives here today. And Lord, the times when our lives don't declare that you are Lord, that they look more like our, declaring that we are God, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, the times when we forget what it means to live in light of, of who you are and that you change and transform us, Lord, forgive us and keep working on us as you promised you would. Lord, let this community, 
be one that represents you well as we are witnesses of who you are. The way we live, the way we interact, let our lives proclaim you are no longer in the grave and you are Lord over this earth. We give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand as we sing this song together here.